Um, so we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 on page 1146 in the Red Bibles. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Thank you, Ehi. Let me start by asking you a question. How do you expect people who are in a position of power and authority to use that? How do you expect people in a position of power and authority to use it? This week, I was forcefully reminded of how important our answer is to that question in family life. But it matters too in business and in politics and, and in the church. I want to start by looking at two men that represent two approaches to leadership and power. The first one is the Corinthian type. You could call this the power leader. We've all come across them, sometimes in terrifying ways. These people who use their power and their strength and their authority to take advantage of others. Who dominate and abuse others through fear and intimidation and even violence. 
who use others for their own benefit and their gain. And then when they're done with them, they just discard them and leave them by the side. It's all too common to see this in the world around us, in our lives, and in our local community. And when you directly experience power used in that way, it makes you sick to the stomach. But there's another way to approach power and authority. And and this is represented here by the Apostle Paul. And you could call this the servant leader way. And, And these people see that they've been put into a position of some kind of authority and power for the good of others around them. And so they serve with their power and authority. They don't demean, they don't take advantage of others, but they seek to to empower and lift others up. They protect those who are under their care and they are humble because they realize that they're held to account for how they use their power and authority. They apologize when they get things wrong. And what we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians is that the church has to have a radically different dynamic of leadership to the world around. The church can't be, have power leaders. It needs servant leaders. Because in the church, we are the people of the crucified king. We are the people of the God of the cross. But sadly, we aren't always so different to the world around, are we? As a messy church in a modern city, the culture and the values of the world around so often seep into the church of Christ. And in this letter of 1 Corinthians, um, you might remember a few weeks ago, we said that it has five main sections where, where Paul is addressing these problems that the church is battling with. Uh, and the common theme through all of these five big problems is that the church is more shaped by the world around than it is shaped by Jesus Christ. And, and today we come to the end, the culmination of the first main section of the letter. So we kind of one-fifth of the way through. Uh, and the focus the last five weeks or so has been on divisions in the church, particularly around leaders. Uh, and powerful personalities, and whose people's favorite leaders are, uh, and the values of the world around shaping the expectations of the church about their leaders. And in large part, the last five weeks or so, we've been seeing how not to go about ministry and leadership in the church. We've been seeing all of the negative side of things. Paul has warned us away from leaning into wisdom and power and human eloquence and, and strength in our ministry and in our leadership. But, but the question that we're left with is then, well, Paul, what is your vision of leadership in the church? What's your positive vision of what this should look like? How is power and authority to be used? And, and we've had hints of, of Paul's answer to this along the way. But as he, as he closes out this section, we get this fuller vision of leadership in the church uh, at, at the end of the section here. And, and what we see is really one thing um, that we see, I think, in this chapter. And it's the spectacle of the Christian life and Christian ministry that is cross-shaped through and through. The spectacle of the Christian life and ministry that is cross-shaped through and through. If you want a, a big word that Christians sometimes use, it's cruciform, which means in the shape of the cross. And what we see in this chapter is this vision of what Christian ministry and leadership looks like unfolds in three phases, and there's something we are to think, something we are to see, and something we are to copy. So firstly, think. Think of your spiritual leaders as servants and stewards. I wonder if an influential 
and a successful leader. I think maybe, I don't know, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Or maybe the CEO of the company you work for, or the, or the head teacher in the school that you work in. If they say to you, look, this is how I want you to think of me. This is how I want you to think of me. What, what are you expecting them to say next? I guess we might expect them to say, well, I, I want you to think that I'm smart, that I'm powerful, that I'm talented, that I'm hardworking, that I'm worthy of respect, that I'm strong, that I'm impressive. You might add some other things. What about if someone who you regard as a spiritual leader or a spiritual mentor that you look up to, what if they said to you, this is how I want you to think of me? What might you expect them to say? I want you to think that I'm wise, that I'm understanding, that I'm compassionate, that that I'm on the pulse of culture, that I understand you and I can bring truth to you. Well, verse 1 of chapter 4, this is how Paul says you ought to think of us, how you ought to regard us, he says. And he gives us two ways. First way he wants to be regarded is as a servant of Christ. And the word he uses here for servant, it sounds quite domesticated to us, but it really isn't. It's the lowest of the low. The literal word is the under rower. Those in the lowest bank of, of rowers, deep in the pit of one of these, uh, the, the hole of these ancient rowing ships. It's just like the worst of the worst job ever. This great apostle who had met Jesus face to face and been commissioned by him to take his message to the nations. This courageous founder of the church in Corinth. He says, listen, I want you to think of me as the lowest of the lowest servant you can think of. You know, Paul knows that so much of gospel ministry, as indeed in any type of decent leadership, is under rowing. It's under rowing. It's unseen gospel grunt work that is anything but glamorous, that is most definitely glorious. It is walking towards people's deepest pain and most difficult moments when you know you don't have answers and you don't know how you're going to find the words to say. It's stepping into complex situations with people where you don't know the way forward, but you, you, you still step towards them to try and <clears throat> help them forwards. It's sharing the good news of Jesus over and over and over with people who are disinterested and indifferent. It's putting out chairs, it's cleaning up sick, it's all sorts of other things. And it's helpful for any people who aspire to to Christian leadership in any form to realize this. Elsewhere, Paul writes to Timothy, whoever aspires to be a pastor in the church uh, desires a noble task. Now, do you know that it's the noble task that is to be desired? It's not the position or the status or the authority or the power that we think comes with it. No, it's the task that is to be aspired. Under rowing. That's why at the Gate Church, when we consider who we might appoint as leaders in the church, whether it's deacons or gospel family leaders or ministry leaders or elders in particular, can I say, as we do that as members, we ought to place a very high value on those who are already under rowing in the church. On those who are deep in the bowels of the ship, doing the grunt work, often unseen with a servant-hearted posture. Let's bear that in mind when we come together in members' meetings and we're appointing people into positions of power and authority within this church. But secondly, that's servants of Christ. But the second way he wants them to think of him 
He says this, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Essentially, what he's saying is, think of us as stewards of God's mysteries. And again, the imagery is not particularly impressive or, or appealing. The word steward here is like a housekeeper, possibly in Paul's day, a slave who's been entrusted with some responsibility by his master. Listen, there are mysteries that belong to God alone, but he has chosen to reveal them to people. And how has he chosen to reveal them? What's the way that he does that? Well, it's through the apostles and their ministry and indeed all Christian leaders and ministers who follow in their footsteps. So this radically reshapes how we're to think of Christian ministry and Christian leaders. They're not acting on their own power and their own authority. But they are stewards who come to us as representatives and with the authority of God. When they act faithfully in accordance with God's word, I must be clear, it doesn't give them a free pass. It doesn't give me a free pass. Because, of course, if, if a Christian leader is a, a representative of God and is entrusted something with God, then, of course, aren't they accountable to God for how they steward what they've been entrusted with? Well, for Paul, this all adds up to a healthy indifference about what people think about him and his ministry. Verse 3, I care very little, he says, if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. And instead, he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. He knows that in, a, in the appointed time, God will assess all things. And God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. God will expose the motives of every heart in every situation and in every moment. Not only what is done, but the heart and mind behind what is done and what is not done. Look, God alone knows all of that. God alone can cut through it all. I can't even do that in my own heart and mind. Who of of us knows our own heart? And God will bring it to light in due course, exposing what is wrong, but also giving praise where that is due. Now, the knowledge and the expectation of this is a defining reality within which Christian ministry and Christian leadership and and any power and authority is to be lived out. So it doesn't lead and it shouldn't lead to boasting and to pride. Paul, Paul knows that all that he has is of the grace of God. And actually, all that he doesn't have is also of the grace of God. So not in boasting and pride, but also not in fear and anxiety. Paul says, listen, my conscience is clear. And in humility, both he and Apollos have not gone beyond what is written. That means that their life and their ministry, they stay as best as they can and as best as they know how within the tram lines of God's words. And it brings great freedom to any who take on any of these positions of, 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 of leadership and responsibility. From feeling that we've got to please all the people all the time and it simplifies life in any number of situations. Let me just please the Lord. Let me just please the Lord and let me just see what his word would have me do here. So listen, this is how you are to think. This is how we are to think of our spiritual leaders as servants of Christ and as stewards. Nothing more, but also nothing less. So don't don't put them on a pedestal as if in some way they are above us or, or better than us. But also don't give them too low a status in your life. Because they are stewards given by God to you 
for your good and for your benefit, entrusted with the mysteries of God, and they will give an account to God for how they, stewarded, how they have stewarded that responsibility. So I think they're worthy of some respect and some submission. It should not be lost on us how revolutionary this way of thinking about leaders is in the history of the world. In ancient history, when Paul, or certainly just before Paul wrote these words, and to be honest with you, still across much of the world today, Power Leaders is the only show in town. That's all people have got. But the fact that we even have a category of, let alone are drawn to in our culture today, this, this servant mode of leadership. And listen, it's in the culture around us as well. We look for this in our politicians. We expect it in our workplace. Well, that shows the extent to which Jesus Christ has got hold of the very foundations of our society and our culture. The one who washed his disciples' feet. The one whose most famous act that he's forever remembered for was dying on a cross. This dynamic of spiritual leadership as service and as stewarding is the radical and the countercultural way of Christ. Listen, it doesn't come from anywhere else. Our culture has taken it from Christ. People don't realize it and don't acknowledge it, but it doesn't come from anywhere else. And we see the echoes of it everywhere. We ought not, therefore, be surprised as we go an increasing and continual freefall away from the influence of Christ in our culture if our models and our values of leadership look increasingly stark. Think. Think about your spiritual leaders as servants and stewards. Secondly, see. See the spectacle of their weakness and folly. Compared to uh, what they're valuing and what they're pursuing in the church at Corinth, Paul and his co-leaders just look rubbish, basically. They look weak and foolish. And, and listen, it's got to be noted that as we go into verse 8, Paul's writing here just drips with satire and, and irony. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself. Uh, no, that's verse 6, sorry. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign so that we, uh, so that we also might reign with you. He's just being kind of, he's picking holes at them. You're so great, guys. You're winning at life. You've got it all. Oh, I wish I was like you guys. You're so impressive. This is what religion so often offers, including religion that presents itself as Christianity when it really is nothing of the sort. Come to us and you can reign and you can have life and you can know victory and you can have riches and you can have all that you want. No more weakness, no more foolishness, no more relational problems, no more health problems. No more debt. You, you won't be stuck in your career anymore. Come join in us and, 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 and you'll succeed in life and you'll be a winner. It sounds so good, but it's drinking from a poisoned well. And the comparison for Paul is stark. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. In fact, it maybe all feels a bit over the top as he goes on about being hungry and thirsty and homeless and in rags. And you think you want a small violin, Paul, you know. 
what he's not saying is that spiritual leaders have to prove their worth by stopping eating and wearing rags and moving out onto the streets or, or anything like that. But what he's saying is spiritual leaders are not to fill their lives up with good things by using others at the expense of them. No, spiritual leaders that are worth their soul instead are willing to give up good things in life and suffer for the sake of others. For isn't that the way of Christ? The image that, that Paul brings to mind is of the, the Roman procession through the streets of the city, probably after a victorious emperor has conquered some other people, some other nation or land, and, and, and he parades through the streets in a victory procession. And at the back of the procession are the defeated enemies, kind of, kind of I don't know, stumbling along. And, and they're on their way to the arena where the sport that will be on offer for, for all of the great and good to so ooh and ah at will be these poor people being torn to shreds by hungry lions or violent gladiators. That was, that was a common thing kind of, that people have known of in that day. And Paul says this, and that's how I feel as an apostle of Christ, a spectacle to the whole universe put on display by God for all to see and sneer at and jeer at. And so it all culminates. He says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. It's the kind of thing that makes your stomach churn, that sickens you and filth you want to get rid of. Eben stood in some dog poo a week ago in his trainer. And his trainers have been out the front door all of that time, all week, waiting for me to get round to the job of cleaning them up. I just haven't had the inclination to go near it, you know? You, you know, you know, you know what I mean. Paul basically says, as apostles of Christ, we're like the poo on your shoe. That's what we are. We're like the poo on your shoe. Right up to this moment, this is how Paul is experiencing these things in his ministry. In fact, we know that it continues to be like that after he's written this stuff from, from, from reading elsewhere. See, you never graduate from suffering and hardship in the kingdom of God. Sure, in God's grace, he can bring us into seasons of refreshing and rest. But the general pattern of ministry is the pattern of the life of Christ. And it is the Calvary road. I've heard it described by someone as the, the J-curve. You go down in the Christian life, down into suffering and death now, but then up into glory and life later. You've probably just done it back to front for you, haven't I? But I can't work it out. So. <laughs> because of Jesus, the way down actually becomes the way up. The greatest among you will be your servant. The only way to new resurrection life is through death. And Paul's not looking... For sympathy, he's not playing the victim card. There's no such thing in his day, but he wants us as Christians in the church to see how much the world has got hold of our values and it's turned us all upside down, like Johnny had with the goggles that make the whole world seem upside down a few weeks back. And he wants to flip things back the right way. He wants them to embrace the way of the cross in their vision and values of what leadership and authority looks like. Yes, it looks weak. Yes, it looks foolish. There's even some dishonor along the way. And listen, if you're struggling to see any of this, or you couldn't imagine seeing this in those who you would regard as your spiritual leaders or, or your spiritual authorities in your life, then I think you need to ask the question, is it possible that they're leading more in the mold of the world than of the crucified king? 
And can I suggest that if that is the case, you might want to think about finding some new spiritual leaders in your life. I don't say that lightly. Whether it's elders or gospel family leaders in the church, whether it's if you're ever in a place where you're looking for a new church in the future, what, what are you looking for and what are your values in the leaders of the church? Whether it's your favorite online preachers and authors and podcasters that we can often give lots of spiritual authority to in our lives. Does it look like this? Could you imagine them looking like this? If not, I think you need to ask some questions. I heard a story of one of these old school missionaries I heard it quite a few years ago. I think it's kind of back from, I don't know, a long time ago. This guy who went to India to share the good news of Jesus in these remote villages around India. And what he would do is he would walk from village to village. So I think it might be back a couple hundred years or something. And he would stand in a, in a village square and share the gospel with people. And people would listen, but then they would mostly kind of reject him or mock him or, or laugh at him or whatever else because it just sounded crazy. And so So he would just walk to the next village and do the same thing again. And the same thing would happen again. (laughs) He would go to the next village. In one village, he was tired and dejected after being hounded out yet again. And so he just kind of sat down by a tree on the road out of the village, fell asleep, just gutted and tired and discouraged. And then he woke to several people from the village. And they were there and they're saying, listen, can you tell us some more about this news that you were just telling us? Please, can, can you tell us about it? And when he said, yeah, but, but, but you know, why? You just said you weren't interested. And, and, and they said, well, when we saw your calloused and blistered feet, when we saw your ragged clothes, when we saw your suffering, we figured that a man who would willingly and persistently suffer so much was worth listening to. And I've got to be honest, I don't know how true that story is. <laughs> so don't quote me on it. I've heard it somewhere else. But I do think it's a beautiful picture of what Paul is saying here. See the spectacle of the weakness and the folly of those who point you to Christ, who is the wisdom and the power of God. And finally, before you think it's uh, just hard for me and not for you, copy their way of life in Christ Jesus. Paul changes gear and indeed tone in verse 14. He goes from this kind of bombastic mickey-taking to this gentle and loving encouragement. I don't want to shame you, brothers and sisters, but I want to warn you as my dear children. He's got all the loving concern of their father in the faith that they will be tempted to to reject and turn away from him who came and first shared the gospel with them. But more importantly, they will turn away from the Christ that he taught them about. You can imagine, can't you, the draw for the Corinthian Christians. Paul is long gone, a couple of years later. And some around the claiming that you can have all the riches and, and all that you want now and all the victory in life and no more of this weakness and folly. Of course you're going to be seduced by that, aren't you? By the standards and the values of the culture around you, looking for an easier life. But Paul urges them with this key instruction at the end of this whole section in verse 16, this whole kind of four-chapter section. Verse 16, imitate me. Later in uh, chapter 11, he's going to encourage them to follow him as he follows Christ. You see, the cross-shaped pattern, the cross-shaped life isn't only the pattern of Jesus' life. It isn't just the pattern of leaders who are following in the way of Christ, but it is the pattern of the Christian life. 
And so, yes, we're to look for it in our leaders, but if we've got it in our leaders, we're to copy them as they copy and follow the way of Christ. And this is to be the spectacle on display in the local church, a group of people, a family of people living cross-shaped lives together through and through. But it's hard for them to copy Paul when he's not around. So while he can't yet go to be with them, he sends Timothy to them. And Timothy's coming to do two, two things. To remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus and to remind them of Paul's teaching. You see, a disciple, which is kind of a bit of a church word we use, isn't it? A Bible word, is, is quite simply learning how to follow Jesus through all of life for all of life. Following Jesus through all of life, for all of life. It is a matter we see here both of doctrine, what you believe and what is taught, and practice, how you live. It's the marriage of good teaching and faithful living. And so it is taught, but it is also caught. Which means that you can't meaningfully grow as a disciple at a distance. The Corinthians need a living, breathing example in front of them to learn from and copy. So Paul says, I'm sending my man Timothy in. Copy him. Healthy disciples are formed not mainly by ideas, not mainly by theories, not mainly by life improvement programs or wisdom or steps or whatever else. They're not formed primarily through books and podcasts and online sermons, distance learning courses, whatever else. But they are formed, all of life followers of Jesus are formed and grown in close, physical, real life relationships with other Christians in the local church. We need to live close enough with others for them to rub, rub off on us. And so we grow as followers of Jesus. Now, all of that other stuff, not bad. It can play a supporting role. It can contribute, but the real magic happens in the church, in these close relationships where we're alongside one another, where we help each other work out what it looks like for us in my situation in my life to follow Christ. And we learn that from each other and alongside each other. So please don't neglect that. Please don't keep gospel family as just a bit part, bit of your life when you'll make it when you feel like it or whatever. Please don't hold off on church membership. Because you don't want it to get too invasive into your life. You will not and you cannot be spiritually healthy for any length of time if we keep these things at arm's length. And Paul hopes that in Corinth they will get this message and they will change their ways so that when he comes, he can come with gentleness. But if necessary, he will come to discipline them because he is concerned for their health, their spiritual health. Now, as, as we close, you'll be forgiven for thinking, well, Johnny, you've, you've hardly sold a compelling lifestyle choice to us this morning, pal, have you? Are you really expecting us to come with you on this? You, know, you go for the scum of the earth. That's great. I, I'm rooting for you. You go for it. But I'll, I'll, take the kind of, I'll take my chance on power and riches and reigning in life now. Thank you very much. Well, listen, we started by looking at two men. Can I invite us to finish by looking at one man? Can we look at Jesus? The one who had all of the glory of the throne room of the universe. The one who had the eternal pleasures of heaven. The one who had perfect life to the full. All of his that he owned and possessed to enjoy and to keep. 
And yet we know, don't we, that he freely, willingly downgraded it. He gave that up for a weak human flesh. He gave that up for a baby in a manger. He gave it up for poverty and a challenging human life. He gave it up for dishonor and rejection, as George read to us earlier. He gave it up for hatred and angry fists. He gave it up for spits and mocking and beard pulling and nails on a cross. He gave it up even for the very pit of hell. Look at this man. Look at this man alone who is the servant of all and also the saviour of all who come to him. Who promises that because of his resurrection and because of his eternal life and power that is signposted to in his miraculous life and his, and it, and his perfect life. He promises us that the way down is actually in the end the way up. And the glory to come is so much greater than the suffering and the hardship now. However hard it gets, he says it's not even worth comparing. So will you look at this man? Look at this one man and will you come to him? And then will you copy him? Will you imitate him in your life? Take him at his words. And believe him when he says that all who try to keep their life, in the end they lose it. But those who freely and willingly decide to give up their life for me, well, they are the ones who find life to the full forevermore. Let me pray that uh, this would be true in our hearts and our lives, and then we will sing together in response. Lord Jesus, we, we just, as we look at you, and as we remember and think about what you've done, we can't help but be amazed how you have turned the world upside down. In fact, you've turned it the right way up again after we had turned it upside down. We thank you for all the ways that we benefit from that and we see that in our, in our society and in our culture and in our lives. And Lord, we pray that that would lead us and many around us back to you, the author, the giver of life. You alone and you alone can save, you alone can bring life to the full. And so knowing that in you we can have it all, would you then also help us to hold it loosely? To even embrace weakness and folly and dishonor for your name and in your kingdom and for your purposes and your glory. And would we help one another in this, in this church, I pray. We need you, Lord. We love you and we want to live for you. Amen.